Hey there folks, Alex Lokes here, Classic Camera Revival, and a bit of a clip show episode for you today. I was digging through my laptop, clearing out some files, and I came across a partly recorded episode where I was trying to stay awake while my son, who was having trouble sleeping himself, just wanted to be near one of his parents, and in this case, it was me. So I decided to run with the idea and got the rest of the team to record clips as well, and we're basically going to talk about cameras that were either given to us by family members or were family members' cameras that ended up in our own collection. All right, so let's roll the intro and get into it. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Hey there folks, Alex Lokes here and welcome to Classic Camera Revival. It's about two o'clock in the morning and my little one David cannot sleep and he's he's had a bit of a full day. His uh, grandma and grandpa were there, my, my wife's parents, my in-laws. My father-in-law and I were installing some shelves throughout the house, notably in David's room and one out in the living room. And I mentioned the one out in the living room because it's a fairly important one because that's the shelf on which I am putting a handful of cameras from my collection, specifically those that came to me from family members. I come from a family of photographers. My grandparents, my Opa and Oma Lauks, both were avid photographers. I've talked at length about my Opa's K1000. I also have my Oma's Instamatic 304, which sadly doesn't work anymore, but the K1000 works perfectly. That's not all. I've added my Uncle Harvey's, so my mom's brother-in-law, his father's 1936 Voigtlander Bessa. Actually, there are two cameras up on the shelves that actually belong to grandparents of my wife, including her paternal grandfather, so Grandpa McCullough. And then there's a Kodak Jiffy 2 that belonged to great-grandma Anne, who was Grandpa McCullough's stepmother. So I decided, like, hey, you know what? If I have to stay awake to uh, make sure that the baby sleeps, then I might as well use that time. So I decided to talk a little bit about a few of the cameras that I haven't mentioned before. And probably the most important one to me is, um, other than my Opelouks' K1000, is uh, Grandpa McCullough's camera. Now, it's nothing special, really. It's a Kodak Pony 135 Model C. Very basic, very bare bones. Back in the day when the only red dot game in town was uh, was Kodak. It's plastic. It's nothing really interesting. And comes from a line of uh, cameras that originally started in, um, in the late 1940s, 1949. And that was the Pony 828. And the 828 format was basically the same general size at 35 millimeter but was mounted on spools with backing paper like 120 film. Um, eventually, they did make a 35mm model denoted by Pony by the uh, term 135. And it's really the one you want to go for, unless you just want 
something within um, the history of Kodak to add to your collection. The Pony 135 first started production in 1950 and came with a 51 millimeter Aniston lens. They're plastic, they're Bakelite, they're relatively cheap. The Model C added a few extra um, tricks up its sleeves. It first came out in 1955 and, repl- and um, lasted until 1958. Again, you have that Kodak Aniston lens, 44 millimeter f3.5 on the wide open. And a faster shutter speed because it actually had the ability to support flash. Guest focus camera, you really want to sort of stop it down and then set that focusing point pretty near to infinity to take advantage of that depth of field. And only having a 44 millimeter focal length gives you a much flatter focal plane. <sighs> I've used this camera only a couple of times as someone who is used to rangefinders, SLRs, where focusing is easy. It was difficult at first, and you know what? There's no light meter either, but there is a hot shoe. So, well, sorry, a cold shoe, an accessory shoe. So if you wanted to, you could mount an external rangefinder or even an external hot shoe meter like the Raveni's Labs unit. But frankly, I just love shooting it at Sunny 16 because again, you have that depth of field there and you set the shutter speed to the, and you're golden. You're just golden. But what really makes this camera special to me is that I have a relationship with Grandpa McCullough. And this was also the camera that um, him and Grandma McCullough took to their honeymoon in New York City. So hopefully when everything sort of settles down and cross-border travel is both practical and reasonable. I certainly hope that I can take this camera back to New York City and use it again. Optically, it's not perfect. There's a lot of unique character to the lens, but I guess that's what really makes it fun in this modern era. Ton of vignetting, ton of fall off on the edges, super sharp in the center, relatively easy to use. You do have to manually cock the shutter every time, but you know what? I'm used to that, especially with some of the folder cameras in the uh, in the collection. So yeah, it's definitely worthwhile if you are in the market for a mid-century camera and want something that looks good and just sort of suits the era. Definitely look at the Kodak Pony Model C 135. Hi, it's John here. It's my turn. So what I have for you is a tale of my father and three cameras that led me on the journey to where I am today. To start off, it is the fall, roughly mid to late October of 1975. I'm a 13-year-old boy living, of course, with my family in Waterloo, Ontario. And we're at a church rummage sale. My father was not a church minister, so the church where he was the minister had a rummage sale. And I was over there just sort of looking around at things and I noticed a camera and I wasn't really into photography too much at this point I, I like I didn't own any other cameras but here was this brownie Hawkeye on sale for the princely sum of one dollar and fifty cents now in perspective uh, this is 1975 money but when the camera itself came out in 1949 it was around I think five to seven dollars so it still held some of its value, and this was the model with the uh, the flash gun. 
So um, I bought it for a buck and a half. And then I need to get, of course, some film. My father said, well, just hold off for a bit and I'll take care of it. My birthday was coming up. And as part of my birthday present, I got a few rolls of Verachrome pan in uh, 620 because this camera took 620. And this was back in the day when you could go down to your local camera shop and buy 620 film, no problem. And he also got me some flash bulbs a package of 12 because of course this camera did not take electronic flash it only used uh, flash bulbs and let me tell you flash bulbs were not inexpensive it was you know it really uh, juiced up the cost of your uh, your film or your, your photography so I started using that camera and it's a pretty simple camera to use you know you're not really changing aperture uh, or or shutter speed except there is a, a way to set it to shoot uh, bulb and uh, I shot uh, a number of rolls all black and white with that camera and that took me to uh, I'd say early 1976 so maybe half a year later my father said no it was time that I could move up now my father's camera he had a Voigtlander Vito B camera from the late 1950s he still had the original bill of sale and even in, in 1956 dollars this camera cost him 106 dollars so that's not cheap you know 106 dollars was quite a chunk of change back in the late 1950s but we've talked about the Voigtlander Vito B before. This is a very precision uh, mechanism, beautifully made camera. The lens is the uh, color Scopar, which is a Tessar formula. And it's a lens that I've used both on that camera and also other color Scopars from, for example, my Bessa 66 folder. Just uh, suffice to say, it is a, uh, a beautiful lens. And so I got to try a roll of film on that. So my father, he sort of showed me the instructions and how to use it. He had sent me to the, uh, the local camera shop, a place in Waterloo called Joe's Camera. Just, you know, your friendly neighborhood, family-run business. The kind you don't seem to see much anymore. He sent me there and he said, uh, ask for a roll of uh, Plus X. And if they don't have Plus X, ask for Tri X. I didn't know what these films were at the time, but uh, I went down to the store and they had a roll of Plus X. So I took it home and he showed me how to load it and I shot the uh, the first roll. Now this film is a, uh, what's just called a viewfinder camera. Uh, there's no coupled focus, you have to set the scale. So you know, I, I shot the roll of, uh, I think it was 20 exposures, because back then, uh, black and white or sorry 35 millimeter film tended not to come in 24 and 36 but 20 and 36 so i had a roll of 20 and i got it developed and i was just amazed at the difference in sharpness between the pictures i had taken with the uh, the uh, the box camera from kodak the uh, the brownie and and this one except for a couple of shots where i'd forgotten to focus and the, it was just blurry insanity but I was just thrilled. And so I used this camera for the better part of a year. And during this year, 
I started shooting for a high school newspaper and I learned how to develop film. Uh, the art teacher for an art class was uh, training people on how to develop film. And so I learned how to, uh, to do that. And oh, I took a lot of pictures with it. But then again, in by surprise, in 1977, early 1977, uh, on a Saturday morning, my father said, John, come with me. We're going to the camera store. And what he, what happened was that he said, well, I'm going to help you buy a camera. You know, you'll have to chip in, you know, over time. But uh, I want you to be able to move up to the next camera. So we went down to Joe's camera and I ended up getting a Yashica TL Electro. Again, I think I've mentioned this camera on on the, on the show before. The Yashica TL Electro, even in 1977, was not a particularly advanced camera. It was a screw mount um, and the metering was stopped down so you know, as you were metering, if you if you turn the aperture ring down, it would uh, the viewfinder would get darker. So just think of it as depth of field preview that's always on, until you turned off the meter. But the camera did have some interesting features at a time when a lot of cameras had uh, just a needle in the viewfinder to indicate the exposure. This actually had a a couple of up of LED displays, a couple of LED lights, one for when you were a, overexposing one for below and both would shine when you uh when you, your exposure was correct and the the meter was nothing's fancy it's just your typical center weighted the lens was a 50 millimeter f 1.9 yashinon and i think a lot of the time yashika's lenses never quite got the credit they were due the yashinon lenses were their better lenses compared to let's say yashikor and uh, this would take this lens took some some very very sharp pictures so it was uh and the the camera worked fine in fact i used it for many years the last roll i shot with it before i put it away for a few years was actually back in 1994 the first roll that i shot uh when my elder daughter was was born so it's sort of neat you know a camera that i got when i was uh not yet 16 that i used to when i became a parent of my oldest daughter and then it, it got uh, it got put away and I, I upgraded another camera to a, a nikon but i still have it so of these three cameras i no longer have the specific brownie hawkeye that i bought at the garage sale i sold it back i think in you know in the 70s after i got use of the uh the voigtlander but i have three or four that are just like that it's a fun camera now it does take you know like i mentioned earlier it does take 620 film not as easy to get today as it was back then but you can jam 120 in if you're if you're careful i of course still have the original voigtlander Vito B. It needs a bit of work. It needs an you know an overhaul. Maybe some year I'll be able to. But that's of course that's a treasure that connects me to my late father. So I will never ever get rid of it. And I still have the Yashica TL Electro. It still works. 
it needs new seals. Of course, it takes mercury batteries. Sometimes the LED lights are a bit uh, fussy, but it's it still works. And again, I'm so happy to still have that camera as well because again, it ties me back to my father. So I have my father to thank for leading me on my initial first steps in my photographic journey. And I'm so happy to at least have two of these original three cameras. Hey, it's Bill, and this is my segment for the Family Cameras episode. And to talk about Family Cameras, I've got to talk about my dad. George Douglas Smith, or Doug Smith, as everyone knew him, because he hated uh, George. He loved, he loved photography when he was younger. Um, he, my dad grew up in Montreal, uh, went to McGill, did his MBA at University of Michigan, got a CPA designation, uh, and worked for uh, Sun Life of Canada and their pension investment uh, group. So he managed pension fund money for other organizations. Short answer. But he needed a creative outlet. Well, well, Dad got into photography, amongst other things. And for him, uh, it was, I wouldn't say Dad was a hardcore photographer like we are. He really, he did shoot a lot of slide. Uh, I'm still going through his Kodachrome. He also shot a fair bit of Ektachrome, Agfa, Agfa and I think one or two other uh, companies I don't quite recognize, probably rebrands. And of course, more than enough of Plus X and Tri X to uh, sink a ship. Now, that always, um, again, when he shot slide, he shot a lot of macro shots of flowers. And uh, he also tried to get some wildlife as well. Um, in Montreal, there's a park at the top of Westmount called Summit Park. And he used to photograph in there on occasion, as well as, you know, documenting around. Uh, the Eastern townships and he, um, and of course he was around for Expo 67. So he photographed all that on Kodachrome in an Olympus pen, half frame point and shoot. Yeah, I'm still figuring out a way of uh, pro, uh, scanning that with a flatbed scanner. Um, so yeah, uh, dad wasn't a huge I wouldn't call him a collector per se, but he did have a nice collection of cameras. Uh, he owned uh, a Leica 3G, a Leica M3, uh, Nikon F, Nikromat FTN, uh, and a Topcon RE. Now that was his core kit. He also had the aftermentioned uh, Olympus Pen half frame point and shoot, which was sort of a precursor to the uh, Trip 35 in some regards. And he also had a Minolta 110, I think the SLR from the late 70s. Um, yeah. And, and he shot a fair bit. And he shot a lot, probably more slide in the 70s than the 60s. And I am still sort of working my way through um, the archives, so to speak. Let's fast forward a few years. We moved to Ontario. Dad drifted away from photography, got into woodworking in a big way, and probably fell down as deep or even a deeper equivalent rabbit hole as I do uh, with film photography. 
Let's fast forward again a little bit further to the late 1990s, early 21st century. I get into photography. My brother gets in, Alex gets into photography. So we both discovered manual focus SLRs uh, on the cusp of the digital era. And then we just started shooting black and white like it's going crazy. Let's fast forward to 2005. Dad's now in his late 60s. I'm in my middle 30s, I think. Hard of math. Math wasn't my strong suit. Anyway, Dad hadn't been feeling well. And he went to the doctor and then came home with some news that basically just hit us all like a ton of bricks. He was stage four cancer. And unfortunately for him, there was no stage five. He'd retired by then. And um, being ever the, the uh, CPA he was and the senior money manager, he got all his affairs up to date, eyes dotted, T's crossed. And then one weekend in late February, early March, 2005, got my brother and I around the family uh, kitchen table and he divvied up his camera collection. My brother Alex wound up with the Leica 3G, the Nicromat FTN and the Topcon RE along with the Olympus uh, pen half-frame point-and-shoot and that funky Minolta 110 SLR. I wound up with the Nikon F and M3. Yes, I didn't get as many cameras as Alex, but I think I went up further ahead. And it's one thing when you kind of wind up getting, finding the family camera that was sort of like you're clearing out someone's effects and it's like oh this is my uncle's camera in this case my dad gave us his gear while he was still alive and um i think it was sort of an unspoken regret he didn't see us using the gear i did remember whole loading the m3 with some agfa apx 400 and i shot a photo of my mom and dad at the kitchen table and this is like three weeks before he passed and I can't remember where the nigs are exactly, and I, but I do know the scan exists, I think, on my Flickr account somewhere. And that's one of those sort of powerful photos that sort of stick with you. So that's my story, the family cameras. That about covers it for this episode. Thank you again for everyone who joined in and listened. My son has finally settled and has let me put him down, so that means I can crawl back into bed. Until next time, remember, just because a camera isn't good doesn't mean that it means something, especially when it comes from a valued and trusted family member. Good night, everyone.